you're now under pressure. Under Pressure is a brief recurring podcast for busy clinicians, investigators, and trainees devoted to state-of-the-art prevention and control of blood pressure. We provide quick, lively, and accurate updates and reviews on important issues in hypertension diagnosis, management, and prognosis from a multidisciplinary team of experts. Our hosts this week are Jennifer Cluett, Clinical Director of the BIDMC Hypertension Center and Healthcare Associates and Certified Hypertension Specialist, and Stephen Churashek, Research Director of the Center. On our podcast this week, Jen will be discussing a patient with Raynaud's phenomenon and hypertension, and Stephen will be discussing a paper pooling data on sodium reduction trials. Welcome to both of you. Thank you, Ken. Jen, let's start with you. We have a case this week that I think illustrates a number of interesting and unusual aspects of clinical care that we don't deal with on a daily basis. Our case this week is a 67-year-old man referred to the BIDMC Hypertension Center to assess blood pressure control given recent symptoms of fatigue and dizziness. He also has a history of obesity and nephrolithiasis, but most interestingly, was recently diagnosed with Raynaud's phenomenon. He's currently prescribed lisinopril 5 milligrams daily and a tenolol 25 milligrams daily for his blood pressure. So this is an interesting case, Jen, that combines both hypertension and Raynaud's. So let's start with Raynaud's phenomenon. Is this something common enough that we should even be thinking about how it interrelates with hypertension? Sure. Uh, So just to remind both ourselves and our listeners, Raynaud's phenomenon is an exaggerated vascular response to some trigger, uh, environmental trigger, or can also be from an emotional stress trigger. Uh, Usually it's cold temperatures. Raynaud's can be considered either primary or secondary. The estimated prevalence ranges from ranges quite widely, actually, from less than 1% to up to 20%, depending on the population you're looking at. Um, it's far more common in women. It's more common in younger patients. Uh, different geographic regions, I'm presuming colder climates, have it more, more often, and also more common in patients who have a family history or a first-degree relative. Uh, like I mentioned, it can be considered primary or secondary. We use secondary Raynaud's phenomenon to refer to those who have some underlying condition or some other cause for their symptoms. Most commonly, these are autoimmune diseases, scleroderma, lupus, and the like, uh, but it also can be due to medications, acquired hematologic abnormalities, or like occupational risks, some like jackhammer or vibrating tool use, things like that. What's unusual about our patient is that he developed Raynaud's in his 60s, and he's male. So that would make us a little bit more curious about one of those secondary causes. So thinking about the notion of secondary causes, is Raynaud's phenomenon, to our knowledge, a risk factor for hypertension? Not per se that I'm aware of, uh, but certainly some of the treatments that we use for hypertension are on the list of medications that can be culprits for Raynaud's phenomenon. Uh, Non-selective beta blockers for our patient is the most likely culprit. Clonidine can do it. Certain stimulant medications used for the treatment of ADHD, some chemotherapeutic agents, ergots, other things we use a little bit less frequently. I'm not personally aware that patients with Raynaud's are more likely to have hypertension or vice versa. I think there's just this sort of interesting overlap in this patient with the treatment. So speaking of treatment, it seems for all the reasons that you noted in terms of an exaggerated vascular response that medication is going to be important both for dealing with his hypertension and for dealing with potentially his Raynaud's. So in terms of first-line treatment, as I noted, he's on lisinopril and atenolol. What might be medications that we might use to start that, that potentially could treat both of those? 
Well, for our patient, what's interesting is that we can both remove a potential contributing cause by stopping his atenolol, but we could also start a treatment, uh, which calcium channel blockers are the first-line treatment recommendation for Raynaud's, and it also happens to be one of our first-line antihypertensive agents. In terms of specific medications, uh, nifedipine has the best data in patients with Raynaud's, but in my personal experience, I, patients have a harder time tolerating nifedipine than amlodipine, which is a calcium channel blocker we use more commonly. Typically, the side effects of headaches, lower extremity edema, flushing, all tend to be worse with nifedipine than with amlodipine. One interesting thing to note is that the doses that they use for amlodipine for Raynaud's are much higher than what I would typically use for hypertension alone. So the range goes from 5 up to 20 milligrams, which we usually cap out around 10 milligrams for hypertension. I thought that was an interesting feature. And so it sounds like we might start with dihydropyridine calcium channel blocker as a first choice in a scenario like this where he needs both treatment for Raynaud's uh, or might benefit from treatment for Raynaud's and for hypertension. What about the flip side of that? You mentioned beta blockers. Are there other medications to avoid? Um, where do beta blockers fit on that list? Potential treatments that might make his Raynaud's worse? So obviously, you'd want to avoid the beta blockers. Also, clonidine, again, not a first line in a hypertensive agent. Uh, for our patient, we were able to transition him off atenolol and on to amlodipine. His blood pressure has been better controlled or well controlled, but it's probably still a little early to say if his Raynaud's is definitively improved. It's interesting, most of the drug trials for Raynaud's, I mentioned the higher doses, but they're also shorter. So if you're treating using calcium channel blockers to treat Raynaud's, you're typically talking weeks to months of therapy rather than indefinite treatment like we typically would recommend for hypertension. So it's important to educate the patient a little bit about that. This treatment is for his hypertension. It may also have the benefit of improving his Raynaud's, but if we were treating Raynaud's alone, we might use a much shorter course. You know, maybe in thinking a little bit more broadly about about this phenomenon, where do things stand with Raynaud's in a larger way? Are there guidelines that we should be looking to for care for patients with Raynaud's phenomenon? You know, how, how strong is this evidence and where should we look for guidelines to manage our patients? So like you mentioned, Raynaud's is fairly uncommon. Um, I, In addition to being uncommon, there isn't uh, actually a clear agreed upon diagnostic criteria. And so a- as such, there are, aren't great sort of clear, crystal clear guidelines for treatment. And then once you get into concurrent or comorbid conditions like hypertension, you're getting a little bit even more gray. Uh, but I think, you know, sort of to close out this case or a concluding point is that I, I think this case really features one of the things that I enjoy most about my job and working in a hypertension center are these more nuanced hypertension situations. We tend to think of one condition at a time. Uh, we sometimes fail to consider the potential downstream effects of a medication, especially something that someone may have been taking for a long time. Like in this patient, he'd been on the atenolol for probably 15, 20 years. Since I don't consider that a first line in a hypertensive medication anyway, and it was potentially causing him some harm, Switching him to a better medicine for his blood pressure and potentially improving his Raynaud's, which, although perhaps not common, is certainly painful and uncomfortable. Uh, it's a win-win in my book. Thanks very much, Jen. And we'll circle back to get your teaching points again at the end. Let's uh, switch gears a little bit. And uh, we have a paper to discuss this week with Stephen Jurashak. The paper is entitled, Blood Pressure Effects of Sodium Reduction, a Dose-Response Meta-Analysis of Experimental Studies. The first author is Filippini, and this was published in circulation this year in April. 
So, Stephen, interesting meta-analysis of studies of sodium reduction. Why don't we start with just the big question here? What were the authors trying to answer in this meta-analysis? Yeah, thank you, Ken. Yeah, so this is a really interesting paper that uh, just came out, and it's quite comprehensive, summarizing uh, a lot of the literature that's out there on sodium reduction, and particularly is focused on clinical trials. And there has been ongoing controversy, believe it or not, about sodium intake and its association with, in particular, clinical events, but also with relation to blood pressure. And one of the ongoing questions is, is there a J-shape or U-shape curve related to sodium reduction and cardiovascular disease risk? In particular, when you start getting to the lower levels of sodium, so more extreme sodium reduction, do we start harming people by dropping their blood pressure too low or causing some um, other adverse physiology that could trigger stroke and other cardiovascular events? And so the authors were trying to use, pull together data from uh, 85 different trials to get a better sense of uh, what was going on uh, across the range of sodium reduction, uh, looking in particular at the, the kind of dose-response relationship between sodium reduction and blood pressure. So, Stephen, um, just sort of giving us a highlight of these 80-odd studies, what's the, the duration of the studies that have looked at uh, the blood pressure response to sodium reduction? Yeah, so it's it's quite varied, and I think that that's one thing that um, really comes out in uh, this study, and I think they do a nice job of trying to bin and, and sort of characterize the heterogeneity or, or categorize the heterogeneity between the studies according to duration. But so some of the studies they looked at were quite short in the two to three-week range, and then others were quite long, as long as like 36 months. So certainly uh, a lot of differences there in terms of the types of trials included. I'll also point out that some of the studies focused on were very tightly controlled feeding studies where folks ate different sodium levels prepared by a metabolic kitchen under monitored conditions. Uh, then other studies were uh, supplement-based studies where people were given a salt sodium tablet. And, and then there were others that were um, more uh, focused on lifestyle interventions, which may have not had the same kind of rigor of monitoring, but did have measured or quantification of how much sodium people were consuming. And I think that that's a, a key feature of this particular meta-analysis is that the investigators focused a lot on achieved sodium reduction and stepped away from what we typically see with uh, meta-analyses of clinical trials that focus on the intention to treat or the randomized design and intervention that was administered. It sounds like we ought to be focusing on that, on that latter point first. That is to say, rather than looking at effects of the intervention after they occur, let's really start with the primary intention to treat questions, since those are going to be the most rigorously studied in a randomized trial. One of the things you you mentioned, uh, Stephen, was that some of the trials looked at at supplementation, some looked at diet. So overall, what did they find? What was the dose-response relationship like between sodium reduction and change in blood pressure? And was that similar between those two different types of studies? Yeah, absolutely. And so, and I should correct myself, they they actually limited the study inclusion to four weeks. And so, it was four weeks to 36 months was the range of studies included. And so, what the authors found is that there was a linear-like relationship uh, between sodium reduction and difference in systolic blood pressure. 
and also uh, in a similar relationship for diastolic blood pressure. And, and so that's important because it really directly addresses this question that's been in the literature about what's happening when you get to particularly lower levels of sodium. And so the idea here is that your uh, net reduction in sodium is linearly related to effect on systolic blood pressure. And if you reduce sodium at any level, at any fixed degree, you should observe a reduction in, in blood pressure that is at least somewhat equivalent. The authors did note that for folks who started higher, so had higher degrees of uncontrolled blood pressure, there were even uh, greater reductions observed in blood pressure, suggesting that you could get even further benefits if you were uh, less controlled at baseline. But even those who were uh, somewhat already uh, at a mildly elevated blood pressures, uh, uh, the sodium reduction did result in some benefit in terms of blood pressure reduction, suggesting that all of us, regardless of our stage of uh, or of where our blood pressure is at, we could benefit by restricting our sodium intake. I think one of the interesting questions that uh, studies like this get at when we summarize lots of uh, lifestyle or, uh, and or supplement studies together is an opportunity to look at sort of what's the magnitude of the effect. So, you know, in your opinion, given the results that they saw, um, let's maybe just start with the subset of patients with hypertension. How much of a benefit can we get out of sodium reduction going from say three or four grams a day, which might we might very well see in the general public, down to you know one and a half or two. Is is the magnitude big enough for us to devote the attention to it that it may require? Yeah, I would say it is. And if you uh, look at their the tables in the the study, so they do stratify by different trial types, and uh, they also look at hypertension status. And so, and they very nicely kind of bin uh, effects. So they reference to about two grams per millimole per day and, and then compare you know what happens if you're at the 1.5 or the 2.5 and as you say they also look at three 3.5 and four grams per millimole per day and what they observe is that if you are in the higher levels your blood pressure reduction could be as high as about six millimeters of mercury so that's at the four gram level if you're at the three gram level compared to the two for those with hypertension, the reduction would be about three millimeters of mercury. And I think this is relevant. You know, when we think about sort of the classic Jeremiah Stanler concept of prevention in populations, right? This basic idea is if we are reactionary to an epidemic that is affecting so many people, we are going to be late. It's costly. And then people suffer from the downstream effects of elevated uh, or uh, blood pressure or hypertension. And so we're playing catch up. It's a more costly approach and it's a more costly approach from the perspective of treatment, but a costly from a, a individual patient perspective in terms of their exposure to disease and a loss of quality of life years. And so this idea of reducing blood pressure in the overall population by three to six uh, millimeters of mercury is actually quite substantial and very meaningful uh, from the perspective of prevention. Stephen, any other take home points that we should glean from this? Uh, review of 80-odd studies, randomized studies of sodium reduction? Yeah, I, I think this, in some sense, is, uh, I, I view this as a strong confirmation of the value of sodium reduction, and it's bringing together a lot of work that has been done in this area over the years. You might disagree with their approach of achieved versus uh, the randomized design. I'm kind of a stick with the randomized design kind of guy. 
myself, but I think this is really a strong confirmation that in the many different ways this question has been looked at, sodium is a driver of blood pressure. And if we can reduce sodium in the population, we know that sodium consumption levels are to a high level uh, in excess above recommended WHO and AHA recommendations worldwide and increasing. But if we could uh, stem the tide on the population level, bring sodium down in the food supply, uh, we will reduce blood pressure and downstream prevent cardiovascular disease. And so I think that this is strong evidence yet again of the importance of uh, policies along those lines. If I can chime in here to say, I, I really agree that this is something that can be addressed sort of at the macro level, at, at the policy level to try to reduce the sodium in prepared foods and improve access to healthy food across the country. Uh, I think it's worth noting, Jen, that you've been working on with the American Heart Association on efforts to do just that, I think, at the political level. So look forward to seeing the results of that. So to wrap up, let's recap our key hypertension highlights for the week. Jen? So, uh, you know, I think the key teaching point from this case is to be sure to consider potential adverse effects from any medications patients are taking, even if they're not the ones that we're actively prescribing or starting. And the other thing I think that's neat about this is that if there's opportunities to treat more than one condition with a single medication, it's a great way to reduce overall pill burden, get the patients more on board with taking treatment and improve adherence. Stephen, your highlights from the sodium study? Yeah, sodium uh, reduction lowers blood pressure. And we should be thinking seriously, um, uh, collectively, policymakers, stakeholders, but also individually in our food choices, a lot about how much sodium we're taking in. And if we want to get to lower blood pressure without medications, before requiring medications, or even as an adjunct to medications and those with hypertension, close examination of the sodium sources can go a long way in terms of reducing how much uh, intake we have. Thanks for listening to another edition of Under Pressure, the brief recurring podcast devoted to state-of-the-art prevention and control of blood pressure. For Jennifer Cluett and Stephen Jurashak, I'm Ken Mokomal, and you've been Under Pressure.